The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Science Weekly from The Guardian. I'm Shivani Dave and today we are exploring the ongoing health crisis affecting glaciers. The rate at which glaciers have been thinning has accelerated in recent years. Since the 1960s, when the effects of global heating started to become clear, the pace of melting has grown faster and faster. Now, glaciers are on average 8 metres thinner, and many have vanished completely because of global heating. This study out recently says even if we cut our emissions to zero right now, we'd still lose sort of 10% of our, our, our glaciers. Gemma Wadham is a professor in glaciology, director of the Cabot Institute, and most recently author of Ice Rivers. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Gemma, I'm going to level with you. I've never seen a glacier, not in real life anyway. What does it look and feel like to be standing next to one? I mean, for me, it's it's quite an incredible feeling because you stand in front of the, the glacier and say it's summer and it's not covered in so much snow. And it's just this sense of enormity. I mean, you just feel this cold air coming off the ice. You can often hear crashing noises where ice is sort of falling off its edges. And it's actually a very dynamic place to to be. But if you're looking down on one, it's even more incredible because actually what you see is this gigantic river of ice flowing down a valley that could be, you know, hundreds of metres wide or kilometres wide and, and, you know, some tens of kilometres long. So it's like a serpent sort of moving slowly down through its, uh, its valley in the mountains. So I find them incredible places to be. Uh, quite sensory experience, actually. Could you talk me through that a little bit more? How do you get a river of ice? The ice in my freezer is pretty solid and it doesn't flow. So how does this ice move like a liquid? The first way is by their ice crystals deforming and all glaciers can flow that way. And it's just simply that the pressure of all that ice on these ice crystals means that they start to dislocate and they they move and actually the glacier essentially moves as those crystals deform. So all glaciers move that way. The second way is that some glaciers have water at their beds. So When you go to the bottom of the glacier, you've got liquid water between the bottom of the glacier and the rock beneath it. And that means you've got this slippery layer um, that enables the glacier to slide down the mountain effectively. Small glaciers in the polar regions are often frozen to their beds. They might not have that way of flowing. So the glacier has to have water at the bed. The third way is if the glacier has sort of soft mud beneath it or sediments. And sometimes that might be sediments the glacier is actually created by eroding its bedrock into very fine powder. And the way the glacier moves over those sediments is actually the sediments are are deforming um, beneath the glacier. And so essentially the glacier rides on these sediments um, as the the sediments move. So you've almost got three ways to, to flow and you kind of glaciers that are just def- uh, moving by their ice crystals deforming. I kind of call them walking glaciers. Then you've got glaciers which can slide as well, and now they're running. And then you might have glaciers which are deforming, sliding, and with sediments beneath them deforming, and they're sprinting glaciers. So you have glaciers moving at different rates depending on you know which of those three ways they can use to, to move. So how, how quick and how slow are we talking here? <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's really variable. So... And it depends on what time of year you go. But, you know, I think the fastest glacier in the world can move, you know, a number of kilometres a year. You're not, you're not guessing you're going to see that with the naked eye on a day-to-day basis. You know, that the slowest glacier in the world 
is is probably moving, you know, sort of centimetres a day and then you don't see it either. So, but you can often see how much the glacier is moving by how crevassed its surface is as it moves over lumps and bumps beneath it that the ice can't always deform perfectly and the faster it's moving that the kind of worse that situation gets so um so you're not talking about flow that if you sat there and watched it you would see but if you set some cameras up and they were taking pictures every hour you'd see the glacier moving but it's the ice that's actually moving it's it's also has its whole plumbing system of water which you know, which is created by the the melting of the surface of the, of the glacier, that then actually ends up kind of percolating its way or, or finding its way to the bottom of the glacier. So you have this entire intricate kind of plumbing system of rivers beneath the ice, rivers in the ice. Um, so it's more than just ice, actually. They're actually the greatest stores of fresh water on the planet. In some sense, they contain nearly seventy percent of the Earth's fresh water, which is a staggering amount of water. You know, fresh water is the only water we can really drink and it's locked up in glasses and ice sheets. So we've established that glasses are pretty cool, if you'll pardon the pun. What was it that first drew you to them and then made you want to study them further? It was probably when I was in my early teens and I'd started reading about them in geography GCSE textbooks. I just found it amazing that you could have these solid rivers of ice moving down through the mountains, but actually carving out the landscape as they moved. And something about the the enormity of that and also the, the dynamicness of it that just really, really captured my imagination. I chose my degree course uh, in Cambridge, actually, on the basis of how much ice there was in it, which sounds a bit obsessive. And then I was lucky enough, actually, as one as an undergraduate, when I was about 20, I helped out on a big research project in the Swiss Alps in a little glacier called the Glacier de Rolla. And I just fell in love with being in these incredible places. I just felt so alive. And that made me want to do a PhD. And then just one thing led to another, actually. I never planned to have an academic career. I just, I just find that so motivating, actually, to discover things that nobody actually knows. I mean, there's things that 20 years ago we just didn't know. So 20 years ago, we thought that glaciers were these white, sterile landscapes where, where no life survived. And all the research that I've been doing and quite a lot of people around the world have been doing has discovered that actually glaciers are homes to billions of single-celled microorganisms. It's as alive as you know, the surface of the ocean or a soil in your garden. And, and for me, that's just something we didn't know. And that changes everything, actually, is knowing that they're not just these sterile wastelands. That is quite a change in our understanding over the last 20 years, about the same time span as your career so far, which has taken you all over the world, quite literally from the Arctic to Antarctica. When you travel to all those places, what's your research focus? Now, I've been really interested in you know, what happens in the murky depths of a glacier. And surprisingly, even though it's dark, you've got these microbes which are living off chemical energy and they're essentially eating the rock and releasing nutrients from that rock into the water. That water gets washed into the ocean is actually sort of supporting food webs, even up to fish. And there's all these things I started to learn and, and you've got other microbes in the bottom of an ice sheet where it's very dark, very cold, no oxygen. And, and these microbes you know, they're actually producing methane gas. It's as similar to what you might find in a landfill site when you've got some carbon and not much oxygen. But, you know, that means that the bottoms of ice sheets could, could be these methanogenic wetlands producing methane. Methane's a greenhouse gas. So, you know, how much methane is there? How is it stored? Is it getting out? How will that change if we start to retreat our ice sheets? I'm really interested in those questions around, 
how does that life in the ice affect how the glacier works and therefore how it affects our oceans in terms of the productivity or how it affects our atmosphere in terms of greenhouse gases. Okay, so you're asking some really big questions. How did you then come on to write Ice Rivers, your book? Well, that is a a curious situation. Um, I've always wanted to write some kind of book about glaciers, but I never thought actually I would write a book for everyone about glaciers. And, And the reason I did actually was towards the end of 2018, where on, unfortunately I ended up being rushed into hospital for emergency brain surgery. Um, I'd been suffering some strange symptoms for many months that had got worse, so I'd losing my balance. I couldn't walk in a straight line down a corridor. I had phenomenal headaches and I started to lose my sight as well. And then eventually I, I just happened to have a scan and they said, oh gosh, you need to go to any immediately. And then there's a very large growth in your brain that needs to come out. And you know, it was a life-threatening situation. Uh, it was a huge shock. I then had six months off work when I wasn't working. And I, to be honest, I just didn't know what to do with myself. I felt pretty awful. I felt I'd lost, I didn't have any context professionally. And it's interesting when these things happen in life, because sometimes what rises to the surface is that passion that was that's really deep-rooted about glaciers and explaining how they work. And I felt I had this second life to live in some ways. And I kind of thought, gosh, all my learnings are locked away in sort of dusty <laughs> textbooks or, or articles. And, you know, maybe it'd be amazing to write something for a wider audience, particularly given that glasses are in crisis. So I really felt this strong desire to communicate, but it, it came from quite a desolate place, actually. I was gripped from the very beginning, but it sounded like a harrowing experience. You said the thin air which laboured your breath and the cold made your bones throb with pain. You barely slept and suddenly you understood why glaciers had been considered the resting place of ghouls and evil spirits in medieval times. But despite this terminal feeling, you weren't giving up on glaciers. On that expedition, you described some pretty rigorous, what I can only call glacier combat training what did you have to learn to do to survive those harsh conditions well i mean it's cold so you have to learn to deal with the cold you are crossing glaciers glaciers are full of holes so you know i had to learn how to rope up and how to you know maybe get myself out of a crevasse if i fell in one I had to learn how to stop myself if I slipped down a very steep slope over some snow using a, using an ice axe. Um, so I remember doing that. And uh, yeah, those are the, the main things actually. And, and, and how to walk on ice. I mean, I, I walk on ice now like it's just solid ground, but actually learning to walk on ice, you end up being quite, taking it quite gingerly to start off with and you become more used to it. And uh, when I've taken people who've never walked on ice before, I forget actually that I've sort of learned this, how to walk on ice, but um that's that's something in itself. And what was your main mission of that research? You know, in between learning how to walk on ice, what were you actually trying to establish? Well, I was an undergraduate uh, doing my dissertation in my third year. So, you know, I was a very, very small part of a, a much bigger project that was doing some incredible things, actually. Um, it was called the Arola Glaciology Project. Um, but that was aiming to understand how glaciers work, but particularly how water flowed beneath them and how that affected how the ice flowed. So they essentially punctured the glacier 
with these boreholes, which went from the surface to the bed, so 100 metres deep using a, a hot water drill. And they'd be able to actually get to the bed of the glacier with these instruments that they'd sort of tether at the bottom of the boreholes. And those instruments would tell you, you know, how the whole plumbing system of the glacier worked and how it interacted with itself and how it changed as the melt rates went up and down from day to day. So a lot of our understanding about how glaciers mechanically flowed, how water flowed through them came around that time from from the Arola project and, and a few other projects like that around the world. And have you seen the glacier moving faster as the climate crisis becomes more and more severe? Personally, I haven't. Um, but that is what is happening in some places, particularly around our ice sheets where you're losing ice off their tongues into the ocean, which is warming. And what happens is that the 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 kind of tongues in the ocean are, are normally they act as these breaks. They push back against the glacier as you take ice off the front of them through icebergs or, or by melting beneath them on their underbelly. What you end up doing is you kind of weaken the breaks and more ice flows down from the interior to replace what's lost. And then actually what you do see is, is acceleration and thinning, which then leads to more melting because the ice is lower. So you end up this sort of spiralling uh, positive feedback effect. So glaciers are clearly victims of the climate crisis. But in your book, you describe that ice sheets create their own climate. How does that work if the two are intersecting with each other? Ice sheets are very reflective. Um, So if they're covered in snow, you know, snow might reflect, you know, 90% of the, the radiation that hits it from the sun and that stops the air warming up too much. So they're they're almost like these giant air conditioners because they create these white, shiny, reflective surfaces. Now, they're becoming less white and shiny if we melt, you know, if they get melting around their edges. And you've also got all sorts of um, algae that we now know live in the surface of Greenland, which have pigments in their cells and are causing the ice to look more dark or look darker. They create these reflective surfaces. They're obviously high. And so, you know, they create high elevations, which is, is cooler at high elevations. Um, and so those, those are the two of the main things, but they also, they might influence how currents move around the oceans. Um, and, and, and that is also movement of heat and movement of energy, uh, which might help control our climate. So as a global population, we are sort of almost doing harm to these glaciers that can help us control our climate. I mean, glaciers can't reverse what's happening with the climate crisis. I think the the problem is that um, it's affecting them and then that affects us. The the main way in which that happens is by, you know, essentially releasing from this frozen store of water, liquid water. And the the problem with that is, you know, we've got accelerated thinning and melt of our glaciers. I mean, that's been shown quite recently in mountain glaciers around the world. We've also seen it in Greenland and Antarctica they're thinning and melting at an accelerating rate. Now, as you convert that frozen water to, to liquid water, one of the things that's going to happen in the mountains is people might get a bit more meltwater to start off with, but then the rivers will dry up as the glaciers get smaller. Um, meltwater sometimes ponds in areas around glaciers because you have lumps and bumps where glaciers have left sediments. And so that creates a hazard for, for lakes catastrophically draining. And then, you know, ultimately this water ends up in the oceans that causes the sea levels to rise. So what you actually got is that that melt and that loss of balance of our glaciers causing you know massive disruption on a global scale to our water cycle that affects everyone from people who live high up in the mountains 
to people who are living in sort of very low-lying coastal environments. They might be coastal cities or they might, might be islands. Um, but it's just a massive disruption to, to the water cycle due to glacier melt. I, I sometimes feel like we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe. And we're now starting to see the signs of that in terms of this accelerated thinning and melt of both our ice sheets and glaciers. And the, the problem is that once you start melting something as big as an ice sheet and some of the unstable things that happen around the edge of an ice sheet where, where it essentially ends in the ocean, um, th- those changes have all sorts of feedbacks that mean they're quite hard to stop once they get going. And I, I kind of feel we really need to take notice right now and make changes right now. Otherwise, we are going to continue to sleepwalk into a situation which could be catastrophic on a humanitarian level. This is a study out recently says even if we cut our emissions to zero right now, we'd still lose sort of 10% of our, our, our glaciers because, you know, there's, there's, a, there's too much greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's already happening. We know that melting glaciers have direct impacts on communities, from wiping out towns and farmlands to flooding whole valleys. But when you saw a glacier melting away, you describe how it affected you personally. You said, my stomach was in knots and tears of disbelief welled up in my eyes. Yeah, I mean, that glacier hasn't hasn't actually died yet. It's the Arola Glacier and it's still moving. You know, my kind of kind of bolt through the eyes really when I saw the glacier that I worked on as a 20 year old uh, in the early 90s and I went back there for the first time in 2018 and I hadn't been there in the intervening period and it was just staggering I mean it's lost about a kilometer of its front at the top of the glacier it's actually lost one of its limbs that's become detached from it and it was just it's just incredible to see it with your own eyes um a place where you've you know, you've grown up as a glaciologist that has all these memories and this this massive, very majestic moving river of ice is sort of reduced to this fairly pathetic, shriveled um, creature that is essentially sort of almost dying in its valley. And oh, it's just, I don't know, it's just <laughs> pretty, uh, pretty astonishing and, and very, very sad. And in August 2019, a funeral was held for the first Icelandic glacier to be lost to climate change. Hundreds of people went to the event to mourn. What does that actually mean? What is the death of a glacier? Well, what happens, actually, what's happening quite a lot around the world at the moment, is once the glaciers get really thin, they haven't got enough pressure for those crystals to deform. And actually, that's when they become dead glaciers or stagnant glaciers. What it means, actually, is the glacier has ceased to move and it ceased to become a glacier, it's stagnant, it's, it's dead, which is very sad. You end your book with a very positive note. You said that you're an optimist at heart and we have an enormous capacity as humans to change how we live. Do we still have enough time? I think it's all to be played for at the moment and I think it makes a huge difference. Every, every fraction of degree we don't warm the atmosphere will make a big difference for our glaciers. I mean, I don't feel hugely optimistic when I, when I walk up to a glacier that's kind of shrunk dramatically in the last few decades. I do feel optimistic about people's capacity to change and I know that we can do that. If you just look at the changes we've made you know, during the COVID pandemic and the uncomfortable choices we've had to make and the difficulties in how we've had to change how we live our lives, that we can do it. As human populations, as communities, we can do it. 
if we judge that it's going to make a life-saving difference to us. And, and I, so I do feel optimistic about the ability of people to change. I just think we have to connect with the reality of what's happening with our glaciers and the humanitarian consequences of that around the world. Thanks again to Professor Gemma Wadham. If you want to read Ice Rivers, you can find links to the book on the podcast's webpage at guardian.com. We'll also include a link to The Guardian's recent series, Our Disappearing Glaciers. And if you have any programme ideas, thoughts or feedback, please get in touch at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. I'm Shivani Dave. Goodbye for now. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.